You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 3rd, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey there, everyone. Kara is working this evening. She can't join us. We all have a very busy schedule leading up to our trip and could not uh, cram in another another recording day this week. So we're going on without Kara, but she'll be joining us actually in a couple of days. Yep. Whenever we, Kara coming up. Whenever we're like three or four days before a trip like this, you know, we're going to be, it's an international trip. It's more than a week. You know, multiple events that we have to do on the trip. I, I always forget this feeling that I get, which is, you know, part anxiety and part excitement. And what's weird is they're kind of on the same spectrum. You know what I mean? They like, stimulate the same areas of, of your brain, Jay? I think so. I don't know, Steve. You would know better than I do. But I, I just feel like they, they kind of ride in the same car with each other, but they're two very okay. different things. Because one is pleasant and one is not pleasant. They're both excitatory. Yeah, you're right. And, I, and But the end result is like I wake up like a dot, like at 5 a.m. You know, like, bing, <laughs> like get up right. and get more stuff done because you've got so a Jay, giant list. So, Jay, one's in the back seat and one's riding on the roof. Is that it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so did you guys see this story about uh, an anti-vaccine billboard that was erected in Auckland, New Zealand? The mm-hmm. billboard reads, if you knew the ingredients in a vaccine, would you risk it? And <laughs> risk is in big, giant red letters. Yeah. Oh yes, gosh. I would. Yes. Do it every year. Yes, I would. The company who – not the advertising company, not the people who paid for the ad, but the advertising company got 140 complaints within the first day that it was up, and they pulled it. Wow. They pulled the billboard. Good. Good for them. Good. Yeah. It only took 140, huh? Yeah. You see, in America, I think it would have taken more like 14,000 people <laughs> complaining so? in the first day or two to take it down. Yeah. So this was put up by the Warnings About Vaccine Expectations or WAVES is the group. Mm-hmm. What a dumb name. <laughs> Warning About Vaccine Expectations. What does that even yeah, mean? What is, I know. I don't even get mean? it. Don't make any waves. And then this is the, uh, the October is their self-proclaimed Vaccine Injury Awareness Month. Oh, my gosh. So the Advertising Standards Authority basically said, oops. <laughs> that was like essentially the content. But like, yeah, we didn't really vet this one very carefully. We'll have to be more careful in the future. You think? They didn't vet it. Is that Does that mean they didn't even read it? They didn't inoculate themselves against the pseudoscience. So, I mean, obviously when things like this come up, someone's going to raise the free speech. You know, even if you disagree with it, I mean, should they have a right to say what they want? But, I mean, this is New Zealand, so it's not like a constitutional issue. I don't think you have the, the right US. to mis. I don't think but you have yeah, the but, right to mislead the public on a on a major health issue like exactly. This. Yeah, that's this is a this is sort of a public health question, and no, you don't have the right to misinform somebody. But they could say that all we're doing is asking a question. Yeah, you know? that's what that's jacking the off. Line. Yeah, exactly. They're jacking off. It implies something that is misleading and it's fear mongering. Yeah, you know. That's like if I said, would you drink Coca-Cola if you knew what was in it? I'm just asking questions. <laughs> I think I think the attorneys for Coca-Cola might have a different spin on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's legitimate, you know. Yeah, so well, it's, it, it's, it was pulled because it's misleading, basically. it's a, it, The fundamental message is meant to misinform and to, to cause fear. It would have a negative, a negative impact on, on public health, you know. 
there's a there's a the public has an interest in in this sort of thing. What do you think about reporting on the fact that it was pulled? I don't know if that brings undue attention to this thing more so than it would have otherwise gotten. Yeah, that's true. It's always a risk, but this is something that we struggle with actually. And because the evidence suggests that saying that's not true, you know, draws attention to something and might actually increase belief in it. But our, the standard that we have used is um, if something already has a lot of attention, then we will tackle it. But we try to avoid drawing attention to something which is wallowing in its own anonymity already. You know what I mean? We're not going to mm-hmm. elevate something obscure by bothering to deal with it. Uh, we let we let it be obscure, but once it gets to a certain level where we're not going to really be adding to its exposure, but now we need you know you need to counteract the misinformation or the pseudoscience or whatever, then then we'll do it. So I think the anti-vaccine message is already out there. You know I don't think that you know that we're going to be elevating the message by pointing out that it's full of shit. All right, we're not pouring gas on the fire then. That, that's whatever. That's that's what we think, right? Uh, this is something that could be studied more to like know what elements actually contribute when you're trying to to oppose misinformation. What's the best strategy? Uh, and you got to be careful about it because just naively just pointing out myths, you know, may may backfire. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're not careful about how you go about uh, doing it. And we have seen that happen before. There is evidence for that. Like when Randy went on to the Carson show and did the psychic surgery and 700 calls came in asking where they could find the psychic surgeon. Right. That's amazing, isn't it? What was happening when they were sitting there watching the show, listening to what Randy and Johnny Carson were saying, and they they completely missed the message? Yeah. I think with health issues, this is like one of the nuances that would be interesting to study. I think the context matters. With health issues, when people are desperate – all they hear is the positive thing. It's like someone says that, you know, that makes this claim for a possible cure and they're not really processing information after that point. All they really hear is a possible cure and then blah, blah, blah. This is bullshit. Pseudoscientists don't believe it. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. But somebody out there thinks this might be a cure. You know, that's, I think that's what's happening. But the same wouldn't necessarily be true for other types of issues. Or Jay, possibly they think, well, maybe that's how the fakers pull this off, but maybe there's some that are actually genuine psychic surgeons. Yeah, I want to get the real psychic surgeons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not some magician who's pretending. It happened to Alan Alda also on Scientific America's Discoveries, right, on PBS, where a psychic, a so-called psychic, was brought in to do a reading on someone, and then they, after the reading, he revealed himself to be just a magician or whatever, you know, that none of this was real, and the person, the woman, said, oh, no, you're real. You have power. You just don't know it. Yeah. And then how many times we've experienced this where we are debunking something, right? And then someone asks a question or comes up to us and says, so you guys believe in this? <sighs> right? It's like I just spent a half an hour explaining why I don't believe in it. So, But that's like an information processing issue. I like to think that we're above average in our ability to communicate. You know, I don't think that we're sloppy in how we communicate. And if I'm spending 20, 30 minutes explaining why something is total BS, it's, it's amazing, but it still happens. Like people just think that if you're talking about something, you believe in it or you think it's credible, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that that's really all that they're walking away with. Oh, well, somebody talk about was talking. I know, right? Talk about superficial. Somebody was talking about 
aliens. Oh, there must be something to it, you know. Yeah, just give it it gives it gravitas just by the fact that it's being talked about on TV. Right, exactly. Or in a lecture or whatever. But that's why you can't it's hard if you do these drive-bys, right? Like a one-time thing. It's not enough, right? If someone's almost all the way there anyway, like they have all the skills, you're just giving them information, then yeah, you, they're fine. But if you're starting from from ground zero, you're not going to make much progress in a drive-by, in a one-time lecture, this, right? Because that, that's the kind of reaction you're going to get from a lot of people. They'll, they'll walk away with what they want to believe or it's a, just a very superficial, oh, there's something going on here. Isn't that interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. And not necessarily pick up on all the actual critical thinking lessons. All right, well, it's... Nobel Prize time of year again. That would that seems like so quick. I feel I feel like we right? just did the Nobels <laughs> last year. Isn't that right? Oh my God! Yeah, yes. This year serious? year went by so quick. Years go by quicker as we get older. I don't know. Uh, it's some some weird perception of time. It's some problem with the the space time continuum. I think certainly that's right. The universe is speeding up. Yeah, that's what it must be. <laughs> Uh, but first, Bob, you haven't done a forgotten superhero of science in quite a while, but you're going to do one tonight. Yeah, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> you forgot to do them? <laughs> you wouldn't let me forget anything, Steve. Uh, yeah, we had a little bit of a hiatus, uh, and uh, I found a good one, though. For this week's Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I will talk about Eunice Newton Foote, 1819 to 1888. She was the first scientist to suggest a link between carbon dioxide levels and a warming Earth. Now, Foote was born in our state, Connecticut, in 1819, quite a long time ago. And as you might imagine, uh, science training for women at that time was as rare as, say, Jay doing a good foreign accent. I mean, very (laughs) incredibly rare. What are you saying, love? <laughs> she was uh, she was lucky, though. She was very lucky to be invited to attend a science college created by Arnos Eaton. And his story, this story, is awesome. I mean, it's just like, what? I, mean, I wasn't even sure if I believed it at first. But this guy was a, a convicted con man, had a life sentence, a con man, life sentence, um, two words you don't really even hear ever. Uh, but he was released after four years so he could become what is essentially an evangelist of scientific education. So contrary to the times, though, he allowed anyone to learn science, even women. Back then, not, no one, not many people believed that, that, that women could, uh, could or should uh, handle a, a scientific education. Foot then was able to learn a, you know, a fairly decent amount of chemistry and experimental techniques at his school. So that's that's that little sub story that I just thought was so interesting. I want to actually research this dude and see what you know more about him. But thus trained, Foote set out to experiment on the effects of the sun's rays on various gases, something that she's always been very interested in. Her experiments uh show that carbon dioxide traps more heat than other gases, and she was the first ever to to show that. Um, she submitted her results to the eighth annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS. Uh, I'll say that again, the eighth annual meeting. Uh, there's been <laughs> lots of meetings since then. Uh, John Henry from, from the Smithsonian Institution read Foote's paper and famously added the following uh, to its preface. He said, science was of no country and of no sex. The sphere of women embraces not only the beautiful and the useful, but the true. Basically saying that women deserve to learn and be scientists. Kind of a an amazing thing to say at that uh, in the eighteen forties and fifties that that time frame. Her research was published later that year in eighteen fifty six, and then three years later, physicist John Tyndall 
reported his own uh, famous results from similar but much more sophisticated experiments. Um, he, ha- he was amazingly trained. Uh, some people say that he was uh, among the most you know, scientifically trained people in, in London at that time, for example. Almost too trained. <laughs> just, uh, <laughs> just amazingly well-trained, and uh, had, uh, he had access to uh, the best equipment of the day. And using all of that, he was able to conclusively describe gases like water vapor, carbon dioxide, and methane as potent agents for a greenhouse effect. And so, yeah, he he does, he clearly deserves praise for showing that so clearly, uh, b- better than anyone, the first to really do it at that level of uh, sophistication and detail. But he did not acknowledge in any way, did not acknowledge any contribution from Eunice Newton Foote. And this is three years after she published her findings. He said things like, you know, he's not aware of any other exp- anyone doing any other experiments like this. Well, um, you know, if he just did a little bit of research, in fact, when Foote had her paper published on this, Tyndall had another paper published in that exact issue. Yeah, not much plausible deniability there. Right, right. Yeah. He, he loses a little bit, definitely. Um, atmospheric scientist Catherine Hayhoe uh, put it well when she said Foote's hypothesis that long-term changes in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels could affect the temperatures of the Earth was remarkably prescient, and it definitely was. So remember Eunice Newton Foote. Mention her to your friends, perhaps when discussing water vapor feedback, radiative forcing, or vanishing cryospheres. Whoa, what's a cryosphere? Whoa, I don't know. They're gone. <laughs> a cryosphere are air, cryospheres are areas of the Earth where water is solid. Cool. And as you a warming Earth, of course, they would start vanishing, wouldn't they? Bob, it made me think. Like the default thing in my head was someone that's in cryopreservation. And yeah, they're right. in like this sphere of you know, right. solid oh. nitrogen, you know? <laughs> nice. Of course you did. The ice ball. All right. So we're going to start out with the first Nobel Prize, the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. This one's really cool. This goes to – this is being shared between two people, an American, James P. Allison, and a, a Japanese researcher, Tosuku Honjo, uh, a Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for 2018. This is for – uh, two related discoveries of different proteins that they both inhibit the functioning of the immune system. And on doing the basic science, understanding the role that these play in the immune system has led to treatments both for autoimmune disease and for cancer. Uh, this is, yeah, this has led to the modern and, and still pretty cutting edge immunotherapy for certain kinds of cancer. So here's, here's what's going on here. First, as a little bit of a background, you know, the immune system, you know, has two basic parts, like the B cells and the T cells, the humoral and the cellular immune system. The humoral, humoral immune system is what, you know, you make antibodies, antibodies bind to specific target proteins, and then those antibodies will either, you know, precipitate out offending or, or invasive proteins or molecules, or if it's like viruses or cells, it'll target the immune system inflammatory factors and, and the, the cellular immunity against those cells, those invading cells. Uh, whereas the T cells, the, the cellular immunity is like killer cells and white cells and T cells you know, that are involved in directly attacking and killing the invaders. And it's, there's a complicated web of relationships among you know, the various parts of the immune system. It's very complicated. The immune system is a double-edged sword, right? Because it causes the whole point of the immune system is to be an army, is to attack and kill stuff, right? To to kill viruses, to kill bacteria or 
and also to kill tumor cells, to kill cells that are misbehaving, or to clean up just dead cells. Not a tumor. Uh, or, yeah, dead, damaged, diseased cells, whatever. It, clean, it, cleans, it cleans them up, right? But you know, the immune system has to exist in a very delicate balance because we want it to be aggressive when fighting off an infection, say, but we have to make sure, you know, the, the system has to function in such a way that it doesn't attack our own cells. So the immune system has an elaborate set of checks and balances, factors that will speed it up and factors that will slow it down, factors that will target it and factors that will say, I'm part of yourself, I'm innocent, leave me alone, in order to get this constant dynamic balance of an aggressive immune system that doesn't cause any host damage when all, when everything is working perfectly. But this complexity gives us some opportunities, right? Because then there's a lot of different ways in which we can manipulate the immune system. The complexity also is a double-edged sword because it makes it hard for us to predict how our interventions are going to ultimately behave. There have been times where we made a drug to block a certain factor, thinking it was going to inhibit immunity and it actually enhanced it, like it had the opposite effect. With all that in mind, let's bring us to the two discoveries here. So Allison discovered uh, CTLA-4, which is a specific factor that uh, essentially puts the brakes on the immune reaction. It, it it is a signal that that a cell is self and should be left alone by the immune system. Uh, and he was able to identify it, to figure out its role in immunity, and to synthesize antibodies that would block it. Now, of course, if you block an inhibitory marker, an inhibitory protein, that would increase immunity, right? It would increase the immune system functioning. Makes sense. Yep. And, and Honjo found something called PD-1, uh, which is another protein, works by a completely separate mechanism, and that also inhibits the immune system. By, and same thing, by making antibodies, by blocking that, that would increase immune activity. Later, researchers then ran with their basic science to make clinical applications. And again, the two big clinical applications of these, of understanding the basic science of these proteins, one is is to fight autoimmune diseases, right? So if you enhance the functioning of these proteins, you stimulate them, then that will inhibit the immune system. But if you block them, that will enhance the immune system. Now, it turns out that some kinds of cancers have developed Ooh, inhibit. Nice. Yeah, the ability to inhibit the immune system. That's why Trixie. they proliferate. Yeah, so yeah, obviously there's cancer cells can't think, right? They can't plan, but they're mutating and growing out of control. And that there's like a little micro evolution going on within cancer, within a tumor. And the cells that are better able to evade the immune system are more likely to survive. And the ones that are not evading the immune system are, will be killed off. And so there's some selective pressure going on. So if a, this rapidly, you know, mutating and rapidly growing and reproducing tumor cells happen, happen to hit upon uh, a way to express these proteins and basically say, I'm self, don't attack me, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a healthy, normal cell, then they can evade the immune system. But by using antibodies to block that mechanism, the immune system can then attack the cancer cells. It'll undo that blockade that the cancer evolved, right? Yeah. But of course, when you do that, you are also unle unleashing the immune system against self-tissues. Uh -huh. And so... Again, you get to this delicate balance of 
wanting to increase the immune activity in order to attack the cancer, but not, you know, remove these checkpoints so that you get autoimmune damage, you know, the immune system attacking self. So that is the side effect of these treatments. Yeah, but Steve, if the cancer is, if the cancer is kind of like down-regulating the immune system, then then the, the immune system's already compromised. Aren't you just bringing it back to a baseline? It's not inhibiting your immune system. That's like what HIV does, right? HIV essentially inhibits your, your whole immune system by taking out CD4 cells. But this is just pretend, just bypassing the immune system by pretending to be a healthy self cell, right? Okay. Yeah, say, yeah, Don't attack me. I'm fine. Now you're saying you're, you're essentially inhibiting the mechanism that limits the immune system's attack on your own tissues so that it will attack those cancer cells. But of course, that creates the possibility yeah. that it will attack self cells. But if you do it for enough, just for a limited amount of time, you deal with the side effects until you could eradicate the, the cancer and then you and you get rid of it and yeah, then you know, it. it goes away. Yeah, so it doesn't create an autoimmune disease. It just creates autoimmune side effects while you're taking the treatment, if right. that makes sense. So what's the worst thing that can happen to you with that? It dissolves your entire body. Well, no, you, oh, you get, infla- you, get, you get inflammatory attacks against, uh, against healthy tissue. So this has been effective. These kind of treatments targeting these proteins have been effective in treating things like melanoma, which and and certain solid tumors which are metastatic, so like end stage metastatic cancer, which is incredibly hard to treat, right? Because it's like everywhere, it's you, you can't target it. But because this is just activating the immune system against cancer everywhere in your body, it actually can be an effective treatment. Now it doesn't Whoa. work for everybody in all cancers, uh, but it does work in some patients with some cancers. So again, there's no like one cure for cancer, but each each new thing that we develop gives us another tool in another our tool, armamentarium. Yeah. So so this has led to treatments, you know, another effective treatment that is taking another bite out of cancer, you know, another and there's ongoing studies. We haven't seen the end of this. Uh again, these guys did the basic science and they unleashed a host of of clinical researchers finding new applications for targeting these these proteins, these wow. these immune cell wow. breaks, they deserve a Nobel and, Prize. Oh, yep. yeah, absolutely, or at least a nomination. And it's it's a great example. <laughs> it's a great example of how you just got to let people do basic science research. This is yes. this is completely reductionist. You know, they weren't looking to cure cancer; they were looking to understand the immune system. And oh, here's a protein on you know the T cells. I want to understand what it's doing. Let's figure out a way to block it and see what happens. You know, just trying to understand how the body works, and then that leads to an incredibly effective cure for some cancers, you know, just incredible. And we, again, we haven't seen the end of the applications of these. This is the kind of thing that does tend to attract the attention of the Nobel Committee, you know, that basic science research that has proved itself by having so many applications, basically spawning entire areas of research, you know. Uh, and this absolutely fits the bill. So this is a good one. Right? This is a, a really good um, Nobel Prize for medicine. This is this is really fantastic research. A good example of the power of reductionist science uh, and pseudoscience can go suck it because they don't have anything like this. <laughs> oh my god! They don't have any yeah. stories like this, right? Yeah, right. it works, Not man. Science works. This is why it works because understanding how shit works is really important. Pseudoscience worked, it wouldn't be pseudoscience. <laughs> right. It'd be real yeah, science. Right. <laughs> All right. Bob, tell us about the Nobel Prize in Physics. Yeah, Steve, uh, the uh, the Physics Nobel was actually similar to what you've just described in terms of uh, basic research that has uh, 
has widespread applicability. Uh, so I'll say uh, for this one, for the Nobel Prize of 2018 for physics, which I always love covering every year, uh, congratulations to Donna Strickland, Arthur Ashkin, and Gerard Moreau for their shares of the 2018 Nobel Prize in physics. Regarding this prize, the Nobel organizers wrote on their Twitter feed recently, advanced precision instruments are opening up unexplored areas of research and a multitude of industrial and medical applications. So yes, these these advances are not narrowly focused. They are, they are very widespread and have been used for years. This, these aren't recent developments, but they have had uh, huge impacts. So um, the first one I'll discuss, the first part of this prize in fact, 50% of it goes to American physicist Arthur Ashkin, who won for his work developing laser or optical tweezers. Optical tweezers or traps, as they're often called, use a, a, a tightly focused laser beam to create a spot in space where micron scale objects can feel a force created by the transfer of momentum from scattering photons. This was originally called a single beam gradient force trap. But uh, as you uh, probably quickly understand, optical tweezers is a lot more catchy. And uh, so, uh, yeah, this has been used for years. Uh, this is this is certainly Arthur Ashkin's baby. He theorized this and and made the first advances using this technology way back in in the eighties, and um, has been working with it uh, for quite some time now. It's, it's amazing. I mean, you could basically catch little uh, things like um, you know the, you can catch things like molecules or microbes and kind of just suspend them and deal with them and interact with them without really touching them because you're just using laser light really so you're not really uh, messing with them in any significant way with it you can do things like construct tissue-like networks of artificial cells you can initiate biochemical reactions you could use it for cell sorting tons and tons of react of uh, ways that you things that you could do with this and uh that's just the just scratching the surface with with what this can do and what has been done with it a uh, david greer a physicist said optical tweezers were not an invention they were a surprise that was a new thought for science that light can pull it's revolutionary this was an amazing discovery that definitely deserves um the, the physics nobel the other half of the uh, the 2018 Physics Nobel Prize was shared by Canadian physicist Donna Strickland and French scientist Gerard Moreau. They shared the prize for their developments of chirped pulse amplification. This is fascinating <laughs> stuff. Chirped. What's that? Chirp, 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 chirped pulse amplification essentially creates the shortest, most intense laser laser pulses ever created. The, what else do you want to know about it? Because that's that's fantastic. Just that little, that high level overview is that got my attention. What they were trying to do is, was deal with a problem of how do you amplify high energy laser pulses without destroying their amplifiers? Apparently, if you've already got a high energy laser pulse, uh, you try to, you try to amplify it even more, you're going to blow them out. So Strickland actually hit on a perfect solution for that. Her idea was to stretch out the pulses in, in time, if you will, and amplify them in that state. So you stretch them out, then you amplify them, then you compress them again. And the result, so you avoid blowing out and destroying the amplifiers, and the result is essentially a femtosecond pulse of light, one millionth of a billionth of a second. In that period of time, light travels the width of a human hair. Wow. Very, very short, very brief period of time, very, very intense laser pulse. Manufacturers have been using this to uh, to drill very tiny, very precise holes 
Jade, you had uh, LASIK eye surgery? Yeah, I had pre- uh, pre-K or pre- was it pro-K or something. I can't remember now. Yeah, you yeah you had a kind of an unusual uh, procedure because your eyeball was just so, so damn big, right? But but <laughs> most conventional uh, LASIK eye surgery using lasers, basically using this technology, millions and millions of people that have had this surgery are direct uh, beneficiaries of this of this advance that w- that has been made. Some think now this really caught my attention. This is fascinating. Some think that this technique could eventually be used to accelerate subatomic particles, potentially replacing behemoths like the Large Hadron Collider, with tabletop devices. Uh, I don't know how far away that would be. That's probably going to require lots of more breakthroughs, but but this type of technology seems to be amenable to that type of advance. How amazing would that be? So the other the other angle to this prize, though, that's getting a lot of press is the fact that Strickland uh, is only the third woman to win this physics prize, uh, the first one in 55 years, over half a century Strickland said that uh, we need to celebrate women physicists because we're out there. I'm honored to be one of those women. Uh, Strickland herself was surprised that she was only the third. Uh, she thought that there might have that there might have been more. She said that hopefully in time it will start to move forward at a faster rate. We can only hope. But congratulations to the to the three physicists scientists who uh, made such amazing breakthroughs that are going to impact everybody. With lasers. <laughs> what about the Nobel for attaching a laser to a shark's head? Oh, that's coming. It just takes more time for the committee to recognize it for its immense. Who would have thought? You'll get know, the lasers. evil Nobel. <laughs> right. Can you imagine when the, when lasers were first developed? It's just like who could nobody could have possibly imagined all of the applications and how lasers are just going to be intertwined in all of our lives. I mean, you can't even. You know, you you could write a library of books dealing with all the different things that can, that that can be done and have that have been done and could potentially be done with lasers. It's such an amazing technology. Yeah, it's cool. All right, one more, Evan, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, and the Nobel Prize in Chemistry 2018 was divided up. One half awarded to Francis H. Arnold for the directed evolution of enzymes, and the other half went jointly to George P. Smith and Sir Gregory P. Winter for the phage display of peptides and antibodies. So let's start with Francis Arnold. Francis Arnold of the California Institute of Technology, she conducted the first directed evolution of enzymes whose uses include more environmentally friendly manufacturing of chemical substances such as pharmaceuticals and the production of renewable fuels. Arnold is only the fifth woman to win a chemistry Nobel since the prizes began in 1901. In a recent interview with Chemistry World, Francis Arnold, they say, designed a way to direct evolution, to take over the wheel from nature. In her lab at Caltech, she can essentially rewrite DNA then use it to change the way organisms behave, creating new proteins for renewable energy, or green chemistry. Her methods have revolutionized the field of protein engineering, and they're now used in hundreds of labs around the world. She began her work on enzyme evolution in the 1990s, and she inspired work by the drug company Merck on their diabetes drug Genuvia. And Dr. Arnold said, I quote, I thought, why on earth would you try to design something you don't understand? Evolution is the only molecular optimization method we know, so why not use it? 
Human beings have been manipulating the biological world for thousands of years without understanding how DNA codes function. And our friend Jennifer Ouellette has written about Dr. Arnold and her amazing work. And in an interview with Jennifer, Dr. Arnold stated that some scientists had originally considered her methods anti-science. They said, it's not science or that gentlemen don't do random mutogenesis. But I'm not a scientist and I'm not a gentleman, so it didn't bother me at all. I love that she said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's essentially she's doing, natu- she's doing artificial selection. She, she is cultivating these enzymes in the way that we would do like mutagenesis farming, right? She randomly mutates the genes for the enzyme and then assays them to see how effective they are in doing what we want them to do, picks the best ones, takes those genes, mutates them some more, picks the best ones. It just keeps going around and around like evolution, right? Discards the ones that don't work as well. Variation and selection. That's the essence right. of evolution. So she's evolving enzymes. That's it. Yeah, that's, that's how genetic algorithms work as well. Just, yeah. just, you know, there's, just, there's a person behind there who's, who's picking the, uh, the, the, the surviving children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to propagate into the next generation. And it's such a elegant application that she, that she came up with in which uh, in which other scientists had been working on other things just not really even thinking that this was among their among their arsenal to be able to try to experiment with but yeah. she saw it for what it was and it was really really brilliant on Yeah it's part. one of those ideas like in retrospect you're like yeah of course you know it's basic but she's the one who thought of it Definitely so yeah. very deserving Now the other half of the prize is shared by George P Smith and Sir Gregory P Winter for the phage display of peptides and antibodies. So what is a phage, right? A phage is a virus that can infect bacteria and trick them into reproducing it. They're cool. Yeah. I like the word phage, P-H-A-G-E, phage. And they're cool looking, right? Oh, they look like little rocket ships and stuff. They're amazing. (laughs) Through his work at the University of Missouri, George P. Smith discovered ways to tinker with the genetic material of a phage to change the molecules stuck on its outside. So, for example, if it were not known what protein a particular gene gave rise to, the gene could be put into a phage and the mystery protein would appear on the surface and be identified. Yeah, so they they have to insert it into a gene for the surface protein of the phage. That's the key, Mm. right? So that when when the phage makes its outer coat, the protein for the gene you inserted gets displayed on the outside of the phage too. So then you can make an antibody that binds to that protein and then you get the gene and the protein together. And so that's, yeah, it's just a good convenient way of studying what proteins are being made by what genes. And meanwhile, over at Cambridge University, Sir Gregory P. Winter's work focused on genetically tweaking phages so that they produced antibodies on their surface, but more specifically the part of an antibody that attaches to other molecules. And this means that you could screen them to find antibodies with the best interactions with other molecules or even cells. Yeah, this is this one's it's a little wonky, but it is yeah. one of those basic. Uh, it's like the science of science things, where it's a, it's a really great technique that helps scientists discover other things, you know, and and it advances research into you know genetics and linking genotypes and phenotypes, which is critical to this research. Techniques like this, which get widely adapted because they're so useful. Again, that's the kind of thing that gets a Nobel Prize. So very cool. Very good awards. Very worthy awards this year. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good year. 
Yeah, so every, every now and then, like, you know, the, the, there are awards where you're like, really? That's, that's what you're giving it for? But, um, yeah. these are all good. Definitely. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. As you've heard before, KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids and adults that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math super fun. My daughter and I, tried out the Vortex Lab, which was a lot of fun. We built our own mixing machine. But along the way, we learned about chemical kinetics, how to speed up chemical changes, and the changing of colors through chemical reactions. There are four fun experiments right there in one complete kit. What I like about KiwiCo is that their mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. To do that, they've got five different types of projects. There's something that for pretty much all kids of all different ages, they, they go from, say, two to three at the bottom end all the way up to nine to 16 plus. And they do this by creating hands-on projects for kids that are not only a lot of fun, but also obviously very educational in a really cool way. And Kiwiko also delivers convenience. They, everything that you absolutely need is in that box, which means that there's no other trips to any extra stores to get these little extra doodads that weren't included. Yeah, right now, Kiwiko is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com slash skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics to try KiwiCo for free. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Jay, you, so we're done with the Nobel Prizes. You have a news item that has nothing to do with Nobel, this, but this one, this is interesting. This is, a, this is a Pew survey about what people believe, which we've talked about before, but this is some interesting new wrinkles. Yeah, this is a cool uh, news item because we've we've kind of danced around this. We've talked about millennials and what they believe in, and and you know as far as religion goes and what and what they're doing. So I, when I found this study, I called Steve. I thought it would be a, a good thing to talk about this week. So this is a Pew Research report, and they drew some conclusions about New Age beliefs among Americans. So the majority of American adults self-identify as Christian. Now, also many of those Christian Americans have New Age beliefs. Things like psychics, astrology, reincarnation, and the idea of spiritual energy existing in nature like in mountains and trees. So these New Age beliefs also existed in Americans who are not affiliated with any religion. So an estimated 6 out of 10 adult Americans accept one of the four New Age beliefs that I listed. So so 6 out of 10 adult Americans believe in one or more of like reincarnation, astrology, uh, psychics or spiritual energy. Yeah, that's high. That is high. Now we get into a, this breakdown. There's a chart here that um, I, I I think is pretty telling. So right out of the gate, you know, Christians, it was like 40% believe in psychics, 29% believe in reincarnation, 26% believe in astrology, and 37% believe in, in spiritual energy. So you go down, it's pretty much, you know, there there is some, of course, variability between like Christian, Protestant, evangelical, mainline, historically black, Catholic, but then they get down to atheist, agnostic, and not, and quote unquote, nothing in particular. The nuns, yeah. Yeah, so comparing, <laughs> now, I just think we, I'd like to compare the Christian numbers to the atheist, agnostic, and nothing in particular numbers, okay? Right. So Christian, like I said, believing in psychics, 40%. Atheist, 10%. Agnostic, 31%. Nothing in particular, 52%. What? Yes, we'll get back to the nothing in particular. Oh, boy. Now believing in reincarnation. Christian, 29%. 
Atheist, 7%. Agnostic, 28%. Nothing in particular, 51%. Believing in, a, in astrology. Christian, 26%. Atheist, 3%. Agnostic, 18%. Nothing in particular, 47%. And then the last one, which is the uh, believing in spiritual energy, Christian was 37%. Atheist, 13%. Agnostic, 40%. Nothing in particular, 61%. So we're seeing the agnostics have a higher number than the atheists, right? Which, the atheists, which tells me more that than double. people who are answering that survey don't know what agnostic means. Right. I yeah, was that's that what I'm right. thinking too. Yep. So I, I just ignored that because it, they weren't given, I think, a definition of what agnostic means. And it, it, it seems like it's a little loose there. But yeah. the atheists, I think atheists know what atheism is. I think non-atheists know what atheism is. At least a good enough definition to self-identify correctly. And the other numbers were very low, actually not as low as I I had hoped. Yeah, 22%, 22% believed in something, at least one of those four things, which is interesting. Yeah, but there's nothing in particular. So I, I was turning that over in my head. Now, I think that the people who identify as nothing in, partic- in particular are, quote, they don't unquote, know what they spiritual. Are. No, no, these are people that just are spiritual people. Okay. That's that's how I look at it because they had very high numbers. You know, they believed 52% in psychics, 51% in reincarnation, 47% in astrology and and spiritual energy was 61%. And 78 78% one or more of those things. Yep. Now as a as a skeptic, if you know, if, if there was another line there, I think we would be one or below, 1% or below if if even at 1%. These numbers are high, guys. There's a lot of people believing in a lot of stuff here. Americans who said they are spiritual but not religious were the strongest to believe in New Age BS. So these are the people, like I said, Evan, they're spiritual but not religious. They kind of follow the beat of their own drum when it comes to what they think reality is and what they think the supernatural is. Now, not not surprisingly, the adult Americans who are both not religious and not spiritual, these are the, this is the group that, that just skyrockets to the top with the percentages. Yeah. Yeah, so essentially, I think the way we have to interpret this is that the nuns, the the, the nothing in particular, are basically New Agers. That's essentially that what you're – it's like everyone who's not all of the mainstream religions, not atheist, not agnostic, what you're left with is New Age believers. Yep, I, I agree. Right? So that's why that number is so high. Now, they also tested for gender, and they found that women are more likely to be both religious and to believe in New Age beliefs. It was 70% of women versus 55% of men. Also, so here's a, here's a, a bunch of criteria. Adults under the age of 65, people who have not graduated from college, racial and ethnic minorities, and Democrats and those who are liberal, who have a liberal lean, are likely to hold at least one New Age belief. So what does this tell us? It tells us we have a lot of work ahead of us. Yeah, it's never ending. It's definitely, again, a multi-generational effort. But, you know, you hear this and I would have liked to have seen this this survey done 50 years ago. I would love to see the comparison. I don't think the numbers exist. Yeah, that would be kind of interesting because you could then maybe make some kind of measure of, of what the modern skeptical movement has had in these yeah. areas. I bet you'd be very similar. Yeah, I agree. It'd be basically the same, except maybe the nothing in particular. I think the number of people in that group is more now than it was 50 years ago. Researching this made me think of something I had never thought of before. And that is, it's possible that this is the background noise of humanity. And that no matter what we as, as skeptics do, we might not change the rank and file, you know, the regular person out there that much. 
I think what we could have a hand in is things like education, uh-huh. what, what people are exposed to from a medical perspective, lobbying with the government and, and, and making things change on that level. But I think it's going to be, it's, it's never going to be the numbers that we want to see with these, you know, averages yeah. of what people believe. I mean, it's just going to be there. It's always going to be there. I mean, it does bring up a, a, an interesting strategic question. Again, these are the things that we wring our hands about. You know, we, we've been talking about this for 20 plus years. And that is like, do we try to reduce the percentage of people who believe spiritual beliefs? Is that really the game? And organized atheists tend to focus on that. Like they want to reduce those numbers. Whereas, you know, for skeptics, I think partly we do what we, you know, we take the approach that we do because we realize we're not bringing those numbers down significantly. That's not really a realistic goal because I, as you say, Jay, this is just the background of human psychology. People, we have a we're spiritual, you know, we, we have a certain desire for spirituality in some manifestation or other. And when you, you reduce one thing, it just comes up somewhere else. You know, as organized religion is decreasing, new age bullshit is increasing. But the number, I think the overall numbers are probably the same. So should we be focusing rather on giving everybody a better understanding of science and critical thinking so that even if they do maintain some spiritual beliefs, it, you know, it won't uh, have as much of an impact on their life. They won't translate that into big life decisions about like what healthcare to use and whether or not to vaccinate their kids and whether or not we're warming the planet or whatever. You know what I mean? We're trying to separate faith from science, say faith from critical thinking, rather than necessarily take faith away from people, whereas the atheists want to take faith away from people. Um, I think both are fine endeavors, you know, to, but I think the evidence strongly suggests that it's really hard to reduce the number of people who have some kind of spiritual belief. It seems to be just too too much part of the human psyche. Yeah, I think I, I changed my stance a little bit from reading this. Yeah, how did you change it? Like I said, I think change the world, like Bill Nye says, I think, you know, what we want to change are the bigger brushstrokes and not yeah. the individuals as much. I mean, look, you know, we've got a lot of emails from people that, tell us, you know, thank you so much. And you, you had major influence and all that. I mean, I think it's very likely that a lot of the people that listen to this show and that are interested in critical thinking and believe, you know, the movement, they probably would have found it one way or the other, if it was the SGU or not. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a predisposition. We all have a predisposition. I think most of us, the vast majority of us to, to find something like critical thinking. So I, I do think that changing the world is going to be, it's, it's morphed in my head to, the bigger things, the more important things that, that will have a broader reach, but maybe not get down to the individual as much. I mean, what do you guys think about that? Well, I tend to think about it, like, I, to frame it more of, like, let's say if you have a creationist, right? If we talk about a creationist, the atheist approach would be to try to get them to not believe in God. And they think that like, belief in, like, rejection of evolution is a symptom of their religious belief, and so we need to take away the religious belief. Whereas the skeptical approach would be, who cares what they believe, what what their faith is, or if they maintain a spiritual faith? That's a personal thing. But they should not reject evolution. So you can make make your faith compatible with science. It, but is that you – know, again, the eight – and I know – again, I'm speaking from personal experience having this conversation with, uh, you know, countless humanists, atheists, agnostic skeptics, that there's – you know, a lot of people think, well, that's either you're compromising or you're, a com- you're an accommodationist and – 
which I think is silly. It's like I personally profess a, a philosophically agnostic approach, and I'm I'm, I'm a, an atheist when it comes to the fact that I don't believe in anything supernatural, and I and I can absolutely I think defend why I make that choice, but I personally think that it's more important to get people to accept science than to reject their faith. And if somebody finds a way to accept science and accommodate it to their faith, that's okay. I'm, I'm like, that's a, that's a win. That's fine. Um, I don't feel like we haven't accomplished anything until they've rejected every scrap of their faith. Yeah, of course not. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's like the perfect is the enemy of the good, right? That's how I, which is my sort of general approach to life. I think if you, if you're always going for the perfect outcome, then you'll be disappointed. Yeah. You're, you're, (laughs) you might accomplish nothing. Whereas if you will accept good enough milestones along the way, like you never give up on the end, you know, the end game that you would like to see. I never give up on anything, but I will, you know, try to achieve, you know, smaller victories along the way. And then when you really think about it from a practical point of view, maybe this is partly my medical training, right? It's not like you need a hundred percent cure. Why bother doing anything? You're accommodating disease. That's bullshit. You know, if you could mm-hmm. reduce symptoms, extend life, whatever, mitigate diseases, that's all good. And, you know, there's lots of things short of a complete cure that are perfectly world worthwhile. There are lots of things that you can accomplish some, with somebody to make them more of a critical thinker, more of a skeptic, more accepting of science, more rejecting of pseudoscience along the path. You know, they don't have to be a hundred percent with the, with the skeptical program or we think we've accomplished nothing or we're an accommodationist. I think that's silly, uh, personally. What do you guys think about that? I totally agree. Yeah. I think you summed it up well right there. All right. But this is going to be the endless, the endless conversation. I don't know that I've ever really can ever converted anybody. You know, people just they, they approach this the way they approach it and you know, these are pretty entrenched camps, even within our community. You know what I mean? What about you guys? Have you guys have you do you, are you aware of anyone who like came at this from one approach or the other that like completely flipped to the other side in terms of like the atheist versus skeptical camps? My personal experience as far as I can remember is that people are pretty entrenched and they're they're in the camp that they're in. Yeah, I, they're two overlapping circles. They don't, you know, they don't eclipse each other, and you know there is some commonality, but there are distinguishing factors that I don't think people in either camper will, you know, make that entire crossover to the other. They just won't. I don't think they. I don't think they feel they need to. They feel they're in a in the best position for themselves that they that they're already yeah. in. But that tells yeah, me that the, on some level it's an emotional position, right? Like I think on some so. level, uh huh. Because typically you're so passionate for the camp you're in, you know, whether it's atheist or or skeptical, you you know, it's just it's it's not even close. In a lot, of, not every case, of course, but for many cases, it's like you know, you can't, I can't imagine you know swinging swinging for the other team. Really, we may have Holy. a biased sample because we're usually dealing with other activists. So if you're an activist, right, that's true. The the approach that you take to your activism, people feel really strongly about it usually, and they and not only do they feel strongly that it's the right thing for them, they think like this is what everyone needs to be doing. You know, that my way is the right way. Um, right. And if you're doing anything else, then you're doing it wrong. Well, you know, if anything, Steve, the um, the atheist movement completely has its place. 
Yeah, and, absolutely. And there's a lot of Yankees yeah, doing great work, yeah. doing really good work, you know, and, and – but – yeah, because I shouldn't would, be upset when other people aren't doing the same. And work. skeptics shouldn't yeah. be upset if other people aren't doing the same thing. Yeah, we right. should all support each other. Yeah, it's kind of. I see it as, oh, why are you curing MS? You should be curing cancer. Okay, they're both. <laughs> you know, we want to we want to address both of those, and I'm glad that there are people who are more interested in MS, and other people who are more interested in cancer, and other people who are more interested in mental illness or whatever. We need just like in, again, this is my doctor approach. You need. A thousand specialists, same thing. Intellectually, we need people with different interests and different skills and, and different passions, all promoting the same basic agenda of making the world a more critical thinking, rational place and respecting science, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, okay. And I'm happy to debate with somebody the relative merits of different approaches without judgment, you know, just trying, just as like, as compatriots, as people who are on the same side, having a friendly discussion about, oh, you know, how do you go about this? What do you think about this or that? How should we be optimizing our efforts? That's all good. But, but when you you encounter like this negative judgment, like, oh, you shouldn't be doing that. You're an accommodationist or you're doing it wrong. I hate that. This is, you know, leave people alone. That, that is so counterproductive in my opinion. But anyway, that's just the human condition. And, and skeptics are free thinkers, right? We tend to be individualistic in our thinking, which is why we're often, you know, trying to organize skeptics is often referred to as herding cats <laughs> because we, we like to argue and we like to go our own way and we don't like to think that we're a member of some group. So it makes it really hard to organize a bunch of free thinkers, you know? Ooh. But that's that's okay. It, it, it all it all tends to work out in the end. But it does. I do think it is the it is a weakness of our movement is that it's just hard to like really focus our our efforts collectively because everyone thinks that their way is the right way. You know. Yeah. 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 Meow. That's why we just do our own thing, right? Like we've had this right. conversation too. Like you know, what 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 group are we a member of? We are a member of the SGU, and we do yep. things the way the SGU does. And that's it. You know, we're not going to try to claim that we represent anyone else. Yeah. Or, or try to convince other people to do things exactly the way we're doing. Yeah. We, our, we have our editorial policy. We, you know, we do things as, as our one little group and that's, and we're fine. And we're happy to cooperate and collaborate and promote other people who are doing good things too. They don't have to be doing it the way we are. It's all good. All right, guys, let's move on. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. Who's Noisy. Okay, last week I played This Noisy. All right, so I got a lot of emails on this one and lots of different stuff, so let me just get into it right away. So uh, Christopher Lipford said, Hello, hello. I believe this week's Noisy is a dry erase marker being slowly dragged over a whiteboard while applying pressure. That's funny, but that's not it. But I kind of hear the noise that you're saying. I've, I've heard those squeaks come out of a, a dry erase uh, pen <laughs> marker. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Scott Wesley said, uh, is it a ham operator trying to tune into a passing satellite? I have no idea. I've never heard that. I've only seen it in the movies. So the answer is no. And then uh, AJ Van Beek said, this week's noisy sounds like alligators croaking. Getting closer. I said that this was notable because, yes, this indeed is an animal noise. But the winner for last week was Jesse Babonis. Hey, Jesse. (laughs) Um, 
Jesse said, hi, guys. I think I know what the noisy is, but the description given with the sound sample is throwing me off. The noisy sounds very much like a male anaraxis toad chirping. Perhaps he's being handled by the submitter and his son. Upon research, you can solicit noises from frogs by or, or toads by the way you handle them, which I found. So wait, solicit or elicit? You could elicit, right? Elicit? Yeah, elicit. The correct answer is uh, that Adam and his son, A.J., Caught a common American toad, which is the same as the other the other toad I, I said. However, he has a talent for getting them to talk. Um, and that talent is like apparently you, you grab their legs and you kind of rub them on their back where the hump is. And that's it. That is a toad. Very cute. Little peepers. I picked this one uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because the guy was out with his son. You know, I have a five-year-old and I totally relate to that. And also because it's this time of year that reminds me of my childhood growing up. Um, with the, with the tree frogs, you know, making that noise at night in the, you know, the New England area. Oh, it's yeah. a very, very distinct noise. Um, I've, I've really never heard it anywhere else that I've ever visited. Uh, it just, it's a noise that I think, you know, is, is resident, uh, to at least this type of climate. Very sentimental. I love that sound. So thank you guys for that. Um, apparently Bob, Evan, and Steve, you, you didn't know. You didn't know that that was a toad. I did not. Nope. No. Mm-mm. It's cute, though. I got a new noisy this week sent in by Randy Montiero. Is it a frog? No, it is not. (laughs) Guys, any any guess? Yes, it's the binary language of moisture evaporators. (laughs) <laughs> nice <laughs> nice it's definitely mechanical yeah so it's that's mechanical what, or that's what he wants us to believe uh a man after my own heart evan uh-huh. god bless you my son thank you yeah so if you think that you have any idea what this is and, and i would venture a guess there's very few people who would really know what this is but i want to hear your guesses i really do because this is close to my heart you can email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org and keep sending in any cool noises you heard this week. All right. Thank you, Jay. So we're going to do one email this week. This comes from Daniel Mangum from Tigard, Oregon. Oregon with T-I-G-A-R-D. Tigard, Tigard, Tigard. Tigard. Ah, I don't know how to pronounce yes. that. He writes... I got my SGU book today. Yippee. I started reading and finished chapter two on memory. I know you guys avoid politics as much as possible. What would you consider talking about this subject in the context of the recent testimony by Dr. Blasey Ford and Judge Kavanaugh? No. Uh, well, Daniel, oh. thanks for uh, the positive comments about the book. Uh, this is uh, the week that our book launches, so we're getting a lot of people telling us about their experience reading the book. We appreciate it. So yes, this is we. While we do not get try to get into political discussions, meaning talking about like promoting any particular partisan position or ideology, informing the science behind a politically important subject is exactly what we do, right? And so this is this is interesting because this is something that a lot of people are talking about in the last couple of weeks, and most people have no idea what they're talking about, right? right? And so they're, they're going to then default to whatever their political opinion is. Whereas I think the, what we should be doing is regardless of what side of this issue we're on in terms of our partisan affiliations, we should try to get the science correct. 
So let's so let's try to do that. Let's just you know try to back up a little bit, take a deep breath, and say, well, what do we know? And the good news is is that a lot has been written about this over the years. So I can go back and read an article about how do um, does emotional trauma affect memory, for example. That was written a year ago or two years ago. And it it's not about this case or biased about it. It's just saying, here's what the literature shows, right? As you might imagine, this is a complicated question, but this is this is a gist of what the research says so far. So there's a lot of, first of all, there's a lot of contexts that we could talk about, and there's a lot of different types of memory that we could talk about. Memory itself is a complicated thing. So let me try to hit the highlights that I think would be relevant in trying to understand this kind of case. If you've been living under a rock, you know, Dr. Blasey Ford has accused Judge Kavanaugh, who is Donald Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, that when they were in high school, when he was 17 and she was 15, at a party, he got drunk. He and his friend, whose name is Judge, right? Mark Judge, Mike Judge, um, were in, they took her to a bedroom and Brett Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her, tried to rape her. Uh, she was able to escape, you know, before there was any actual rape, but he did sexually assault her. Uh, of course, this is 36 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, Dr. Blasey Ford says she's 100% certain that this happened and that it was Brett Kavanaugh who did it. Brett Kavanaugh says he's 100% certain that he didn't do it, that this that this event never happened. And that he also says he was not at the said party. That that's a that's a, a more complicated bit because uh, Ford. That's his claim. <laughs> well, but yeah, but what party? Right. The thing is, yeah, he, he's not. He's saying that he. I don't. Did he? Did he say that he was never at any yep. party with Ford? Uh, no, he didn't say. Uh, because she said. Because here's the thing. So here's the thing. So Ford says is able to recall certain details about this evening. Uh, she there's like random details about the house and what happened. She says that while this was happening, the two guys were laughing and their laughter's burned into her memory. But she she's not exactly sure where the house was or what day it was that this happened, and she's not quite sure how she got home, for example. But she is sure about some details, and so this has sparked the discussion. What is the significance of her memory, her her partial memory of this event? Does this call into question the credibility of her memory or of her sincerity, of her veracity? Okay, what do we know about memory in general and memory that results from an emotionally traumatic event specifically, right? Mm-hmm. So – Memories in general, we know, again, if you read the book or chapter in the book on this, memories are terrible. Oh, yeah. From the moment they're created, they're a, they're a partial narrative about what happened. We select what information gets through. You know, this is all usually subconscious. It's filtered. It's biased by our expectations and our perceptions and what we already think is going on. You know, we have sort of a narrative about what we believe happened. That becomes our memory. And then over time, that memory morphs. It could morph with other memories. It could, you can fuse details. You can switch details. You can switch the perspective. A third-person memory could become a first-person memory, etc. But there is a research on the effects of emotionally charged events 
on memory. And what they show is that high emotion tends to increase memory, but usually only if it's a negative emotion. So negative emotions have uh, enhanced memory, but the evidence suggests that they, they have what's called focal memory enhancement. And what that means is that some details are enhanced while others are not. And that is a, that's is complex. A, it's oh complicated, but so what ends up happening is, and of course, you, know, for example, women who have been sexually assaulted, raped or whatever, anything that would be, you know, a violent encounter like that, they tend to have these vivid, stable, clear memories of specific details. And really, they weren't processing and don't really remember, or their memories just fade for other details. They fade or morph or whatever. And so you end up with this patchy kind of memory. Oh, I distinctly remember the, what music was playing, but I don't know where we were. You know, that, that's a very typical feature of a negative, emotionally negative traumatic memory. That's what the research shows. But there's also another phenomenon which has been demonstrated, and that's called memory enhancement. And what happens is as uh, people remember emotionally traumatic events, they may in they their memory may alter to enhance the emotional significance of the event. This is worsened, uh, or this this effect is in, is is increased if you try to visualize, like if you force yourself to remember or to relive the event or to visualize it. So it's something that's very easily can happen in therapy, for example. My takeaway from all of this is that Doctor Ford's memory is actually completely compatible with the research on what the memory of that type of event would be like. Certain details are vivid. Certain details are burned into her memory as she reports. Other details are lost or, or foggy or faded. That's typical. The fact that she doesn't remember those things does not call into question the veracity of her memory. It's not incompatible with a traumatic memory. It's actually completely typical of it. However, the research also suggests that there may be details of her memory that are not accurate because they may have been enhanced over the years. As she remembers it, more details that support the theme and the emotional content of the memory may have been mixed in. I, what, what I would say is, you know, I would totally believe that maybe she remembers it as being worse than it was because that's what tends to happen is these memories can get worse over time. That's actually a lot of that is 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 discussed in the literature on uh, post traumatic stress disorder, right? And the idea there is that PTSD, you know, people with PTSD can actually make their symptoms worse by remembering the event over time, and actually the re the memory becomes more traumatic than the event itself because right. the memory gets enhanced, um, and they need to try to work against that. So. You know, I think that Ford's therapist would have probably a lot better idea of which of these processes were at work or like how plausible is it that like, you know, like how much has she been dwelling on this over the years? How much has she, has she had therapy where she's had to relive it or recount it or et cetera? That's always why contemporaneous accounts are always so valuable because anything that locks in details at the time they happened 
we know that that they haven't drifted or enhanced over the been enhanced over the years. So, and that could explain. You know, the other thing is people are trying to say, is it possible they're both telling the truth here? Well, you know, again, I'm not I'm not going to try to make those kind of judgments, and and people are going to have strong feelings about this one way or the other. But is it possible that Kavanaugh did something that I mean, it's hard to imagine that she didn't have a, a traumatic experience, right? And I think that some details like who was the person assaulting her is is something that she would remember, right? So those are probably details that are accurate. But maybe it it wasn't as bad as she remembers. Not that not to minimize what happened, but just to, in other words, it's possible that Kavanaugh's memory of it is like, oh, it wasn't that bad. And her memory of it is that it was really bad. And the truth is somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? He's might have, his memory may have minimized it over the years, or he may in fact not remember, although he vehemently denies ever blacking out. You know, that's a separate issue that, you know, that is uh, being explored in the media. But, you know, if we, if we just saying what are the possibilities here, it's possible that he's sort of whitewashed the memory over year over the years, or he just doesn't remember all of it or parts of it. And it's possible that her memory is accurate. It's also possible her memory has been enhanced. And that may explain why they're far apart, right? But having said all that, there's no reason, the details of her memory give us no reason to to be suspicious of her sincerity. Let me Let me say that. You can't say, oh, if this if this were a real memory, she would not forget these details. That's wrong. That we could say is flat out wrong. Uh, remembering some details vividly and forgetting others is absolutely typical. But obviously, there's a huge range of possibilities within what we know from research about the way memory works, specifically for traumatic events. So, of course, within that wiggle room, you know, people could you know place themselves along the continuum wherever they want in alignment with their partisan proclivities. As a side note to all yeah. that, this has been a opportunity, I kind of hate to use that word, for people to learn more about memory mm-hmm. over, overall <laughs> and a lot of misconceptions. And So yeah, ideally, you know, the, these events would be just that of an opportunities to learn, you know, objectively about things like, you know, memory and, and traumatic events, et cetera. But I, I would, unfortunately, I think people take their corners. You know, it's it, our experiences that highly charged controversies are not a good time to teach people stuff because they're not really open to being taught. They're they're very defensive. Yes, everyone's getting in their trenches. Yeah, right? in general, we say it's better to engage people and teach them on topics that they're not emotional about because they'll be better able to learn and to understand to process it. But the reason why I think it's important to talk for us to talk about this is because we're not only teaching about memory in the abstract, we're trying to model how to respond to these controversial events and I and, and I think that one way to do that is to try to back up, to try to be objective and to and to be aware of your bias, you know, and your partisanship and your ideology and say, all right, I'm going to sort of step out of it and not let that influence me and try to look objectively at what the evidence actually says and what the experts actually say, rather than just taking a side and, you know, making a lawyer's case for that side, which is what most people are doing. Mm-hmm. It's hard, though. It's hard. Very hard. You know, but I think it's important to try. And, and you know, I again, I'm trying not to get political, but I do think that we need to at, at times, 
Well, there are political implications of critical thinking, right? I think that it, I, I think that being reasonable, rational, and critical thinking especially is especially important at times like this. And that, that means that there has to be a rational conversation to have in the middle where we find common ground. And when you go to the extremes and, and you justify that, for in whatever way you justify it, you know, even if it is justified, I think you have to make even all the more of an effort to say, okay, a reasonable person would be angry or defensive or whatever in this situation, but I'm going to try to rise above it and maintain some kind of objective, you know, reasonableness. Because if we don't, then we lose our ability to function, you know, and I think that's, I, if I've read a lot about this. I think the one common thread in, in the discussion of this, which I agree with, is like the one thing that this is a muddy mess, but the one thing we can all agree on is how dysfunctional the whole process is. Sure. Yeah. But I think, the, how do we get out of it then? How do we get out of that dysfunction by just saying, right. okay, we got to find some common ground in the middle? And, and facts are the common ground, which is why this whole post fact thing is so upsetting. Because without facts, we have no common ground. And then we can't, that's when, that's when the system is broken. We, we need to be able to at least agree on some kind of basic shared reality, right? Otherwise, there is no common ground. There's no hope for any workable process. All right. Let's go on with science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts. Two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one they think is the fake. Then at the end, we all find common ground and agree on which ones are real and which ones are fake. <laughs> all right. Three regular news items mm-hmm. this week, although Kara's not here this week, so I indulged in two astronomy items and one, te- oh, and one technology item. So she'll be glad that she missed this week. All right, here we go. Item number one. Astronomers have discovered a microquasar, 15,000 light years from Earth, spewing photons 25 trillion times more energetic than visible light. Item number two. Researchers have developed a molecule that can convert photons into electrical current at 80% efficiency. And item number three. Astronomers announce new observations support the discovery of the first exomoon, 8,000 light years from Earth. Jay, I believe that was your woe. So why don't that you was go, my woe. Why don't you okay. go first? Whoa, yeah, I will. Man. Astronomers, they discovered a microquasar, 15,000 light years from the Earth, and it's spewing the uh, 25 trillion uh, photons that are 25 trillion times more energetic than the visible light. Jesus. Imagine putting a solar panel next to that thing. Oh, forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> solar panel <laughs> the second one here that you're saying re- researchers developed a molecule that can convert yeah. photons i mean that's a, it's a molecule that sounds like so unbelievably too good to be true of course you can't scale it up you know it, it might just might mean nothing as far as like you know changing solar panels and stuff like that but in the lab they created the molecule okay i mean i could see nano nanotubes some type of nanostructure that might be able to do this Last one, uh, the astronomers, they announced new observations that support the discovery of the first exomoon 8,000 light years from the Earth. Okay, I see no reason. 8,000 light years is really not that far away, but okay, it could be exomoon. That one I, I will buy. My gut is telling me that it's the, the fake is the microquasar. I think I will pick 
the 80% efficiency one as the fake. Okay, Evan? A microquasar 15,000 light years from Earth spewing photons 25 trillion times more energetic than visible light. I mean, those numbers are staggering. How do you even try to visualize that? Yeah, I don't see how you can. I don't know. That's wild. And therefore, it might be fiction. Uh, the second one about a molecule that can convert photons into electrical current at 80% efficiency. Well, I mean, that sounds impressive on its own, right? Uh, it's I'd be surprised if you could maybe harness that, you know, in some way. It's not like, hey, let's grab a bunch of these molecules and there we go. But we're good. We got 80% efficiency gizmo now. Nature or in the laboratory. The last one about the discovery of the first exomoon 8,000 light years away from Earth. Jay? Yes. That, that's no exomoon. <laughs> that's no moon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Jay, you're right. In a cosmic sense, 8,000 light years from Earth is not far. But an exomoon. Those are cool. And we haven't talked about those very much. It's always exoplanets. It's rarely exomoons. I like this one. I hope this one's right. Oh, boy. I'll have to say, I think the 25 trillion times more energetic than visible light. Something's wrong with that one. I thought maybe the photon one, Jay, but maybe, you know, again, they found a way to squeeze it. And other than that, it's not like we're going to make a power plant out of it. So that leaves me with the microquasar is fiction. And Bob, I guess we'll just start with one um, microquasar. Never heard of a microquasar. Quasar is, of course, a, galact a, a, it's a galaxy with a very active core. They're generally very, very far away. So a microquasar. So we're talking it's got to be um, a black hole that's very active. It's in a feeding frenzy and is spewing out radiation, probably from the accretion disk if there's one or the, uh, or the jets, the black hole jets. And 25 trillion times more energetic than visible light. So what are we talking, like gamma radiation? Calm down, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Hulk smash. So probably, but is that too – 25 trillion, that's a huge number. Is that too much? I, I just don't know offhand how, mu how much more energetic gamma rays are than visible light. Uh, they're a hell of a lot more energetic. So, but that, so, I, so I can kind of see that happening. But cool, microquasar, I never heard of that term. Let's go to the uh, second one, researchers – a molecule that can convert photons into electric current at 80% efficiency. 80% is just way too high. That's, that's, that's huge. That's, and just a molecule, not like multiple molecules working in concert. It's just one, this individual molecules that could do this. Oh man, it's just way too good to be true. Let's see, uh, exomoon. Uh, yeah. I mean, 8,000 light years to see an exomoon, but it's probably a big exomoon. Um, if we're, if we're seeing it. And if we are, I think our methods are sensitive enough to see an exomoon. And if it's an exomoon, that means what? It's also got a planet, you know. So we're de so we're probably detecting both of them. Um, so that sounds reasonable. So yeah, I'm going to say that the the uh, eighty percent efficient molecule is just that's that's fiction. Okay, so you all agree with the third one, right? Astronomers announce new observations support the discovery of the first exomoon, 8,000 light years from Earth. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Exomoon. I think I, in fact, mentioned this one a year ago because this is a follow-up. That's why it's, it's not the, – the press is reporting it, like the press release is like – First time ever, but I'm like, but didn't this happen a year ago? It's actually the same one. It's it's new oh. observations which are confirming 
the initial spec you know, reports a year ago, but not it's not final confirmation yet, which is why I also just said support right. the observation. So it's big, uh, right? It's got to be big. Yeah. So the planet is a Jovian planet, right? It's about two to three times the mass of Jupiter. And the moon Oof. is the size of Neptune. Wow. So you basically oh have God. Neptune wow. going around Jupiter. That's, that's, awesome. that's a big I mean, orbit. A, a, a binary planet. I tried yeah, to yeah. find, Bob, where the barycenter would be between these two, and yeah. I couldn't find that detail. Well, if you got to get their masses and their distance, we could calculate it ourselves. Yeah. yeah. Let me find my slide rule. Yeah, but it's neat. Because so, we, we were just talking about this, right? Because about the planet definition. Yeah, How, right. Yeah, could you have something like Neptune that's actually a moon? Because it's going around something even bigger still, and here we go. This is this is an EXO example of it. But that with that Neptune-sized world would be a moon if the barycenter, the center of orbital, the center of orbit between the two the two worlds, if they were between outside the surface of either one between the two of them, then we could think we could say that's a dual planetary system. Right. If it's beneath the surface of the bigger one, the Jovian planet then the Neptune-sized world would be a moon, not a planet. So I don't know. I don't know. But they're calling it an exomoon, not a double planetary system. But but it's neat to think about that. Think about Neptune going around Jupiter. Plus That's an, cool. Plus an exomoon is a lot cooler than a dual exoplanets, you know. That's, I don't know. That's yeah. pretty cool too. So this was observations by the Hubble telescope confirming the initial observation by the Kepler Space Telescope. Gosh, Hubble, I tell you. Think about how much awesome that that thing oh, has done over the years. I love it. It's our generation. It's our baby. So the first observation was compelling enough that they were able to get time onto the Hubble. And but they need they do need to like make more observations to confirm it because this is like one transit, you know. And it's based on so you know they're using the transit method. They they could see the Jovian world going in front of the star, and then there was this. It was, there was a wobble in its movement. So first of all, so it had, something has to explain that wobble. And then there was a trailing dip, like right behind it. And so they're saying an exomoon would be the simplest explanation for those two things. Because that would explain the wobble and the trailing dip. You know, as if there was a moon trailing behind the bigger planet. Neat. All right, let's go back to number one. Go to the other astronomy one. Astronomers have discovered a microquasar 15,000 light years from Earth spewing photons 25 trillion times more energetic than visible light. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Yeah. Bob and Jay, you think this one is science. Mm -hmm. And this one is science. Ah. Sorry, Evan. Ah. You got me with the 25 trillion, Bob. Yeah, 25 trillion is a big number. That's why I used it. So, yeah, Bob, I didn't, before this news item, I'd never heard of a microquasar either. So quasars are uh, large- Active uh, galactic nuclei. Yeah, active galactic <laughs> nuclei just spewing out. They're the brightest things in the universe, right? Spewing out very yeah. high-energy gamma rays. So it's surprising that we have a little one just uh, 15,000 light years away. That's damn close, you know, on, on galactic scale. Spewing out very high-energy gamma rays. And how could something so small do this, right? So obviously we don't know, but we have hypotheses. So they say that the the data suggest that it's be the, the jets, the gamma, yes, the jets. But what's causing these jets? The gamma rays are generated by electrons Magnetic colliding. Fields. Hang on, 
They're generated by electrons colliding with background microwave radiation left over from the Big Bang, the microwave background. This means that electrons in the SS-433 jets attain energies that are about a thousand times higher than those achieved by the most powerful earthbound particle accelerators. So essentially something is accelerating these jets of electrons and then they're colliding with the background radiation, microwave radiation, and then that's producing the gamma rays. The cosmic microwave background radiation? That's what they say. I just read it. That's feeble. That's that's feeble. That's a couple of degrees above absolute zero. I mean, it's it's not necessarily a lot of them, Bob. It's just that the the ones that are the gamma rays that we're getting are very high energy, but this right, but it doesn't have to be a lot of them. It's the it's the magnetic field of the black hole. I mean, that's what's focuses the uh the jets and so it's something about that. There's something probably unusual about the magnetic field of this of this black hole. I mean, is it a I guess it's not a supermassive black hole, but is it how big? How many solar masses is it? All right. So, yeah. So, what they're saying is this is a binary system containing a supergiant star that is overflowing its Roche lobe with matter accreting onto a compact object, either a black hole or a neutron star. Creates two jets of ionized matter, producing the gamma rays in the, in the way that I mentioned. Hmm. Wow. They're even floating the idea of a neutron star doing this? Yeah. Something's funky going on there. If that's the case, 25 tera electron volts. Yeah. Yeah, they said that. Well, they do say that there's a magnetic field. They say that it's consistent with a single population of electrons with energies extending to at least hundreds of tera electron volts in a magnetic field of about 16 microgauss. Well, that doesn't sound like a lot, 16 microgauss. It doesn't. There you go. Very cool. All right. So, microquasars, something new to explore. Mm-hmm. All of this means that researchers have developed a molecule that can convert photons into electrical current at 80% efficiency is the fiction. Yeah, any of you guys read the real story? No, I didn't. No. no. It's also cool, and I really was on the fence about whether or not to make this one this, the, a science. But then I had to, would, have, would have had to turn one of the other ones into a fiction. But So what they did discover is a, is a molecule – that can store solar energy for up to 18 months, but it doesn't produce electrical current, and I made up the efficiency to be ridiculously too high. So what, they, what it can do is, if you expose it to sunlight, the molecule can heat up by 63 degrees Celsius. So let's say you have it in a liquid form at room temperature, it's 20 degrees Celsius, you expose it to light, it converts the molecule into a higher energy state, so now it's going to be at 83 degrees Celsius. And it can hold on to that higher energy state for up, you know, just by storing it for up to 18 months. And then you can convert it back and get that energy back. You could run it, you know, run it through whatever, water or something else. It'll convert. Run turbines or, you know, heat the water and run turbines. Yeah, whatever. One thing. And then it converts back to its lower energy state and then you could reuse it. You could just use it to store more energy, just, you know, shine more light on it. So it's kind of like a battery. What, what would you call yeah, it, though? Yeah, it's kind of like a battery, you know, but it's an energy storage system. But the bit that they're excited about is that uh, it's reusable, so you can make, like, a closed-loop system and that it could store it for so long. So, like, you could store sunshine from the summer and then use it to heat your home in the winter, you know. Yeah. Um, Or even just like doing it from the day and then using the energy at night, you know, anything that – any way we could shift the solar energy, you know, really makes solar renewable power more more feasible, more plausible. Interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's interesting. Rather than using a battery or pumped hydro or whatever, just having a molecule that has these two states and you could flip it into the higher energy state by – 
absorbing sunlight. Well, what happens after after the elapsed period of time if you don't convert it, if you don't make use of that energy? It's, does it slowly leak away or does it pop out? I guess the molecules will, over time, they revert back to the lower energy state and just lose the heat energy as waste. So but you're they having can a steady release of heat in the interim a little bit. There's, there's got to be. I don't know what the curve looks like. You know, yeah, could, that's, the, that's the question. What's the curve? Um, in the materials that I found that didn't get into that, that level of detail. And, of course, they're saying this could be a workable system in 10 years. They, they didn't even bother with <laughs> they the They didn't five go with the ten. five? Yeah, they just said 10 years. So we know what that means. Yeah, never. Commercial use in 10 years. Yeah, yep. could be in 20 or 30. 50, 70. We're never. <laughs> <laughs> but I do wonder what the efficiency is because I couldn't find that either. Yeah. If you, and you have to know what's the efficiency of the whole cycle. Uh, if if the efficiency is really terrible, like it's twenty percent right. or something, then it's not worth it, or it may not be worth it. You know, certainly not as a primary energy storage system. Uh, it may be a way of shifting what would otherwise be wasted solar energy. You know, to right. a time when you could use it. Right, and then then um, it won't matter as much because you're still storing it for long term. It's interesting. It's a good. It's an interesting concept. I, I agree, guys. Like I'd never heard of this. You do it just like a using a molecule to store solar energy by just shifting it into a higher energy state. It's a great idea. Uh, and I do wonder about – and again, the, the news reports always focus on the one good aspect, right? The one interesting aspect of it or feature that is interesting. Oh, 18 months. But I want to know all the other things like what what is the efficiency? What is the energy density? They did mention the energy density and it seemed to be okay, but it's not great. And, and of course, like they have to, does it scale up? What's the system going to look like? What's the over, like how much energy are you going to store and how much space and how much weight with what efficiency and what's going to be the maintenance costs and all these lots of other sub other things. And there's so many potential deal breakers with this kind of technology. And that's why, you know, just focusing on that one feature that's, that's compelling doesn't really tell us much. But it makes right. for great it makes for great headlines. Though. I wonder what else you can do with it. I mean, could, could you throw some of that stuff into a pool at night, and then when the sun rises, it heats the pool. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. But these kind of discoveries—that that's the point I was getting to—is that you never know where they're going to lead, right? You know, right. that's like again, like we were talking about the Nobel Prize to bring it around back to that. The, this kind of basic science stuff—they always have to think what is the obvious application of it. But sometimes the non-obvious applications are the ones that really take off. And right. it just will take, take some clever person to go, hey, we could use this for this, you know, which is why I never, never poo-poo any basic science discovery like this because you just never know how it's going to pan out. Yeah, there's too many examples in history of yeah. uses that nobody anticipated. Good job, guys. Sorry, Evan. Thank you. This yeah, is a good one. Know. I think these were three interesting items. Evan, it comes and it goes, my friend. Hey, look. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Evan, give us a quote. Here we go. The biggest gift of science is teaching us how to free our mind. So stay skeptical, be curious, and ask questions. And that was the spoken words of Vince Ebert, who is a German entertainer and science communicator. He's hmm, got why some have I never heard of him? I, <laughs> maybe because he's German? No, but his English is quite well. And he has some very funny videos on YouTube. He is a, well, science communicator and entertainer and does lots of different things. And he has these stage programs, they're called. Among them, the titles are Physics is Sexy, Thinking, yeah, wor <laughs> Thinking Worth It, Freedom is Everything, and another one called Evolution. And oh, it's neat. made him known as a, check si out. 
a science cabaret artist who uses verbal wit and comedy to both laity and scientific audience enthusiastically. I mean, this is a translation from German, so yeah, that's how they're <laughs> that's how they're that's how they're saying it. It's like no, Google Translate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is Google Translate. <laughs> <laughs> to, so, it, who uses verbal wit and comedy to both laity and scientific audience enthusiastic? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> all I think we get the gist. Yeah, <laughs> all these worlds are belong to us. He's a le- lecturer, entertainer, all around good guy, and loves science. So check him out. So next, the next episode is actually going to be one that we're going to be recording when we're all physically together in the studio. Oh that should be a lot of yes, fun. Yes, we will be melding yeah. into one Voltron. Yeah, we'll be recording that in a few days on this coming Saturday, but that'll be coming out next week after this show comes out. That should be fun. It's actually a rarity. It'll be fun. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And don't forget about Cubico. Cubico creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science technology, engineering, art, and math fun. Kiwico's mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. Kids can create their own arcade games, construct a hydraulic claw, or tinker with electronics and motors. Kiwico is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit kiwico.com slash skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics.